Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Ao. Leadership is harder than looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Su Ken Ui is the co-founder and managing partner at Iterative. Iterative is a Y Combinator-style accelerator focused exclusively on Southeast Asia. In their latest batch, they chose the top nine companies out of over 300 startup applicants. The domains range across prop tech, fintech, direct-to-consumer, and logistics. In 2009, he co-founded Decide.com with Su Huan Ui, Brian Ma, and Yan Ma. Decide.com was an early machine learning company that predicted the future price of consumer goods. It raised over $16 million of total funding and was acquired by eBay in 2013. Since then, his other tech executive roles include being the chief product officer at Workmate, an on-demand blue-collar staffing platform in Southeast Asia that has raised over $10 million of total funding. He was formerly VP of product at Weave. Weave was a platform that delivered a personalized and professional introduction every week and was part of the YC Summer Batch of 2014. Sukan has a Bachelor's of Science in Mathematics and Statistics from the University of Washington. His hobbies are books, cooking, and football. You can find him on Twitter at Sukan Ui. Hey, Sukan. So good to see you. Good to see you too. It's really interesting to see you really focus on building out this accelerator for Southeast Asia. We've heard such good things about it. Yeah, the response has been amazing, and I'm really excited to get to meet more entrepreneurs and work with entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia. So for those who don't know you, how about sharing your leadership journey? I thought leadership was a waste of time, to be honest. I thought about it as almost corporate brainwashing. I thought that if you get a couple smart people in a room together, there doesn't need to be any leadership, and there doesn't, it definitely doesn't need to be management. I think management to me was a dirty word. It just seemed to be a way to control people. And so there was no leadership journey to start, at least consciously. But I think as you start companies and those companies start growing, you are naturally drawn into those roles and you have to kind of fit into those roles. Honestly, at the first company, I did what I thought was the thing that I was going to do, which is we hired a bunch of people. I got them all in a room and I was like, great, make magic happen. And nothing happened, right? And it wasn't so much that they did stuff, they, they actively came to me and were like, okay, well, what, what are we going to do? Or how are we going to do it? How should I do this? And these were like very smart, very ambitious people. They were looking for help on how all of this was going to fit together. That totally just threw my perception of what management meant. And I think the thing that I viewed as management, it was just very bad management, which was very much just like, do this, don't ask questions. You don't need to know why it's that case. Just do what I tell you. I don't need to explain anything. The thing that has become kind of clear was that like, when you work with very talented, very smart people, they care a lot about why they are doing the things that they're doing. And they care about where they fit into the kind of the bigger picture. And I think the progression for me was that that first company, I threw a bunch of people in a room, nothing happened. And then had to throw that view of the world away and then get to work of like, okay, so 
I guess we should make teams and we should have reporting structures. Okay, how does that work? At the time we started that company, I was 22. We worked on it for six years and it grew to about you know 40 or 50 people. And I think th- those couple years where it was growing really fast was just honestly me trying to keep up with the speed. I felt like I was getting to some level of management kind of know-how for the stage that we were at. The company would accelerate. I was totally out of my depth, right? Like a 10-person company is very different from a 25-person company. And then at 50, it's kind of this whole other thing. And so I was constantly just like, just got comfortable, then having to accelerate and learn again and kind of making lots of mistakes along the way. And then the second company, I sat down before we started that company and was like, okay, here are all the list of things that I think went wrong, that I did wrong as a leader and a manager in the first company. I want to do them differently in the second company. And, you know, I think the thing that I learned at that second company was I didn't make the same mistakes at the second company, some of the same, but you just end up making newer, different mistakes because every company is so different. The people that you work with are very different. The stages that everything is different. And so I think after the second company, it was very clear to me that you can't treat leadership like some sort of whack-a-mole game. It's like, oh, you know, there's only 20 mistakes that you make. And as long as you don't make these 20 mistakes, it doesn't work at all. And the thing that came out in the third company was you want to get good at the meta game of managing, which is like, how do you get good at being good and improving at being a manager? That is when it really kicks in, right? So you're going to make mistakes as a manager. How do you get yourself in a place where you recognize that you need to make a change? How do you go about making that change quickly and kind of in a considered fashion? And then how do you communicate that? So there's that whole process around how to do that. And getting good at the process is a much more valuable skill than knowing what things not to do and not making those mistakes. It's a much better approach to that. So that's kind of where I am now is getting good at that part. Wow, that's quite a journey. How do you find leadership important for yourself and your peers? I came from this place where I I didn't think very much of it and I didn't think that highly of it. I think the the saying that encapsulates how I feel about it now is that if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go with others. And honestly, my personality, I think as an introvert is like, I just kind of want to do everything alone. I'm much more comfortable that way. The thing that I've learned is that you just can't do anything that ambitious by yourself, if I'm being honest. Like you need help from other people. And you need help not just because you don't have you, you there's not enough hours in the day. You need help because you're not going to be good at everything. I'm not necessarily good enough at everything I need to be good enough in order to accomplish the things that I want to accomplish. And so you have to lean on other people to kind of do that. So anytime that you are bringing other people into the fold, there is some version of leadership and leadership is not only just being the CEO, right? I think everybody has some form of this. And I think where it becomes important, especially with entrepreneurship and startups is your primary role is recruiting people around this vision that you have. And you're doing that constantly, right? In the beginning, it's like, okay, I have this idea. How do I get people excited about this? Which is an inspirational part, which is is really important to kind of get in the beginning. Once you have the people, it's like, okay, how are we going to all work together to make sure that we are putting all of our force and effort into one direction? Sometimes when I think about teams, and sometimes they're my teams, are not going well. It's like somebody, we're all pushing in the relative right direction, but we have like 30% loss because some of the force is going tangential to that, right? So it's not all going up the hill. It's like, we're kind of going sideways. And so 
to me, especially in startups, it, it can be summarized as you need to be able to recruit and inspire people and rally people around this vision that you have. And then you need to be able to get people into the right spots and the right roles so that they can effectively spend their energy in doing that. The last part that I personally take a lot of responsibility for is that when people come join me or a company or uh, somebody on my team, they are lending me their time and their talent and energy. And I take that responsibility seriously because they, they don't have to do that, right? There's lots of places that they can do that. And they have spent a lot of time cultivating those things over the course of like literally their life. One of the things that I try to do with that leadership part is, is that appreciate that they are making a choice to kind of follow me on this. I, I'm not forcing them to do that. They are making that conscious choice themselves. Sometimes I have to make some roadmap, like product roadmap or something, let's say very tactically, right? I actually call the meeting a proposal meeting. What I'm going to do in the meeting is I put together a roadmap and I'm going to propose it to everybody else on the team. Proposal is a really important word because I'm not saying, hey, I'm going to decree from the mountaintop, this is what you all are going to work on. I'm proposing it and I'm making my case that this is something that we should all spend our energy in doing. And I want to hear feedback on that. Now, I'm not a consensus driven person. I don't think consensus all the time will get you the best results. But I do think that people appreciate that kind of respect where you're kind of going to them and being, I don't take what you guys are doing for granted. I'm going to propose what I think we should do. I have good reasons for it. We should have a conversation around those reasons. And then after that, we can agree and kind of move forward. But that's something that I've carried with. We started doing that at the second company in response to a problem that we had at the first company. And I've carried that into every company and that process of, hey, this is a proposal. Like I'm coming to you. You guys are like my investors. You guys invest with your time and energy. And I, I want to make this case to you. But honestly, Startup Founder is mainly just this, right? You're recruiting and you're getting people aligned around things. So there's probably nothing more important than the leadership aspect of it. It sounds like you've really done a lot and learned a lot. Take us back all the way to the beginning. How did you personally get started in the journey? So I've been doing startups for almost like, I don't know, like 13 years now. I can remember those first two years so vividly. And most of the stuff in the middle are kind of like, you know, kind of just like, they just kind of go by really fast. But for whatever reason, those first few years are just like, I could, I, I could like pick out like everything about it. So I graduated from school and I kind of wanted to always kind of build stuff. And so I was just trying to figure out what do people who want to eventually start a thing do? And I ended up being a consultant. I was basically making a lot of PowerPoint presentations and it wasn't, it wasn't what I was looking for. I wasn't building stuff. And when you're a consultant, you may work on a project, you may make a recommendation, the client may or may not take that recommendation. Even if they take the recommendation, you kind of roll off that product. So you never see it through. That it was not the experience that I wanted. Since I wasn't getting that from my actual job, I was spending all my nights and weekends building stuff on the side. And I remember building all kinds of really dumb ideas. To be honest, I just wanted to get the practice of building. I didn't actually care what the ideas were. So I remember one time, one project I was working on, I wanted to know what it was like and what it took to make a website on the internet from start to finish, like all the way through. Nobody helps with anything. But then, you know, back in the days, 2008, I had to set up a server. There was no AWS. I literally like set up a server, installed Ubuntu onto it and like configured Apache. And like, I wanted to know every step of it because like I just was this thing that I care about. And so one of the nights I was working on it really late. It was like five or six in the morning by the time I realized it. And I felt like... I just remember an overwhelming feeling of annoyance at having to go to work. I recognize that's a ridiculous kind of feeling to have. Everybody has to go to work. 
lots of people go, everybody goes to work every day. But I just felt so annoyed that I had to go to this job that I frankly didn't care about. I was just annoyed by it. If this is the rest of my life, I was like 22 or 23 at the time. If I've got 25 years of this, oh, I, I don't I don't know if I'm going to make it, right? Like, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but like, I don't know if this is going to work. And so I remember getting changed and I was a consultant. So I got to wear some like button up shirt and I got to put on some nice pants. I got to do all this stuff and I'm riding the bus to work. And I remember the entire time being, is there a way to not have to go to work? At the time I was like, oh, startups seem to be a way to like make a livelihood and do the thing that like I really like to do. So I was like, okay, I guess I want to do a startup. Honestly, I had no idea what a startup was. This is 2008. I was living in Seattle at the time. I didn't know anybody that worked at a startup. I think somebody sent me a TechCrunch link once. So I started trying to find friends to work on this startup with me. And the thing that I found was I would talk to my friends about, hey, we should work on the startup. And a lot of friends were like, yeah, we should totally work on the startup. And I was like, great. Sunday afternoon, let's like meet at this coffee shop and let's work on the startup for like five hours. I would show up Sunday afternoon in the coffee shop. No one else would show up. And I just remember being very frustrated and surprised. Why weren't people taking this as seriously as I was? And just being disappointed over and over. This was a thing that I like really cared about and nobody else seemed to kind of care about it. Fortunately, I have a brother who is the best engineer that I know, still is the best engineer I know. And he was working at a startup called Zillow. So Zillow is one of the first property sites in the US. But when he started there, they were pre-launched in about 40 people. And so he was working there and he kept telling me about this guy named Brian Ma. And at first, the stories of Brian Ma were, hey, there's this guy that I play Guitar Hero with. He's really good at Guitar Hero and I'm really good at Guitar Hero and it's really fun. And I was like, great, <laughs> like fantastic. I'm glad that you have a friend at work to play Guitar Hero with. And so then one day he's like, hey, remember that Brian Ma guy I, I've been telling you about? And I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, he's gonna quit. I was like, oh, okay, well, what is he gonna do? He's like, oh, he's gonna start his own company. I was like, oh, that's interesting. What does he think he's gonna do? He's like, oh, I don't know. He's got this idea or whatever. He wants me to do it with him. I was like, oh, are you gonna do it? He's like, I don't know. I'm gonna tell him if he gets funding, I'll quit, but I, I don't know. He wants to come He wants to come over and pitch me. I was like, oh, well, you should like listen. And he's like, okay. And then a couple of days later, he calls me and he's like, hey, so Brian's gonna come over. I told him that you are interested in startup stuff. And he said, you should come over. I was like, okay. So I, I go over to my brother's house, Brian Moss sitting there. We're sitting in his couch and his TV and Brian walks us through this like 60 slide deck of his idea. And we don't ask any questions because frankly, none of us know anything enough to ask questions. We just have no idea what we're like. This is the first time I've ever had anybody pitch me anything. At the end of it, uh, Brian's like, hey, you guys should work with us. And I was like, okay, well, like maybe we should can do this like Sunday thing. Because that, 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 that had been my test at the moment was like, will you show up on a Sunday basically to work? And if you're going to show up on Sunday. So I was like, okay, well, next weekend, let's show up on the Sunday and we can work on it. He's like, great. So he's like, okay, let's meet up at your brother's house Sunday. And we're going to meet at one o'clock. I said, great. So I show up at one o'clock on Sunday and Brian and his brother are there. They've been there for a while. And I walk over to my brother and I was like, hey, and he's like, they've been here since 1030. And I was like, what? They've been here since 1030. They just said they got excited. So they came over and started working. I was like, oh, honestly, at that point, I was like in. I have finally found people who are as excited about this as I am. I don't know them very well, frankly, and I, I don't know if I would give other people advice on finding co-founders this way, but I was just in. There was a thing that I wanted to do, and that now there were people who took it seriously like I did. And so, honestly, that was it. We just started working together from that. We all quit our jobs, and we all worked on it full-time. We worked out of my brother's basement. We spent 
two years building all kinds of products, probably two dozen that honestly didn't go anywhere. I remember distinctly one of our products didn't get a single sign up. We couldn't get our friends to sign up. Nobody signed up. You reach a new level of low when you build a thing and you can't get a single sign up, not one. And that was us. And then, you know, I, you know, I can say the rest is history or whatever, but we got lucky and we raised a couple million bucks and we went into the next stage. But, you know, uh, those were the early days, humble beginnings, kind of grinding it out for two years. And that was really valuable to us. Amazing. What hurdles did you personally face and how did you overcome them? Gosh, there are so many hurdles. I, I always make the joke with friends that the two things that have taught me most about myself are relationships and startups. For startups specifically, there's just a lot of doubt and I think self-doubt. And I don't know how much founders talk about this. This is something that I want to address at Iterative is that we need to build safe spaces for founders to be able to talk about the self-doubt. I felt it very acutely the first time around. We spent two years building stuff, right? And, you know, we built a product that no one signed up for. And we spent those two years. I didn't make any money. I didn't have any insurance. We didn't turn on the heat in my brother's house because we were trying to save money. I literally sat in a folding chair at a folding table and we brought in sleeping bags. So we sat in a sleeping bag while we worked because it was so cold because we couldn't turn on the heat. I watched all of my friends like progress. They were PMs at Google and they were becoming senior PMs and they're moving up this like corporate ladder and driving nicer cars. And I was going to work in the freezing cold in my brother's basement. I had gone through life and gone through school. It's structured and people pat you on the back and you go to work and there's a manager who's giving you feedback all the time and telling you you're on the right path. When you start a startup, none of that is true. There's no structure and no one's patting you on the back. I started wondering whether I was the right person to do startups and be an entrepreneur. I didn't know any other entrepreneurs at the time. I didn't know any other founders. There were a lot of days where we would build the thing and I would pour everything into it. It would take us months and we would launch it and no one would sign up. I would go home and be like, what am I doing with my life? Are we ever going to get there? Am I the person who is on a desert island trying to come up with the theory of relativity and, but just hasn't realized that I'm not capable of doing that, but everybody else has realized that? I think the thing that kept us going was we just seem to be having more fun than them, if I were being honest. They never wanted to really talk about their work as much, and we just couldn't stop talking about it. And even though I didn't drive as nice of a car, it just seemed like I was having a lot of fun hanging out with my friends and doing this thing. And so that kept us going. You have to figure out a way to cope with that on some level and continue. I'd love to tell you that that has gone away, but it honestly hasn't. Three startups in, sometimes I'm sitting in things and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. The thing that I've realized around that personal journey, around the doubt thing is that you're just never going to extinguish it. So the name of the game is how do you build environments and frameworks so that you are able to operate efficiently and with that doubt. So I've been a big meditation person for a long time. I used to not wanted to admit myself that there was doubt because if I admitted that there was doubt, that meant it was real, which made the doubt worse. And so the thing that I've taken from meditation is that it's better to admit that there is doubt, but recognize that you are not your doubt. Doubt is the thing that you are feeling. It is temporary. And that is the thing that you're feeling at that moment. You are not the doubt, right? And so that's given me some kind of distance between this is a feeling that I have, just like anger or sadness. These are all feelings that you have, but they're not me. That was the biggest thing to overcome for me personally. And it's still something that I work with now. What are the common myths that you've encountered so far in startups? 
Gosh, I, I feel there are so many startup myths these days because I think the press has gotten a hold of startup culture and loves to push myths on stuff. I mean, I will give you the very general myths and then we'll work on the not as typical myths. So the general myths around overnight successes and stuff is just not true. Having been in Silicon Valley for a while, they, they just don't happen. You know, you may hear a story about a founder who made a thing and then in three months, it's like, oh, Clubhouse, they've only been alive for three months and they haven't even launched publicly and they just raised that $100 million valuation. The facts of that are true, but those founders have been working in that space for a very long time and they've been building those networks over a very, very long time. Notion's actually been around for seven years. They're having their moment right now, but they've been around for seven years. That guy has been grinding it out as a solo founder for like seven years. So this whole idea of overnight success is totally not true. Uh, I think people have talked about it, but in my experience, also kind of like not true. I think maybe the less common miss, and maybe this one is personal to me, is I think sometimes, and it's been interesting, some background to me is that I'm originally from Southeast Asia. So I'm, I was born in Penang. My whole family's from Penang. My parents still live in Penang. I moved to the US when I was five. That's how I got a very strong American accent. So when I tell people I'm from Penang, nobody believes me. I speak Hokkien, which is very funny to people because it's Hokkien, but with an American accent. And so I moved to the US when I was five, but I used to spend every summer in Penang. So it was like nine months in the US going to school and then three months in Penang living with my grandmother. And so it's been interesting kind of like having that experience and living in the US, then living in somewhere like Silicon Valley and then moving to Singapore and getting involved in startups here. One of the things that sometimes I, I get a sense of from founders in Singapore is that San Francisco people or founders are some kind of wonder kids. They're like, God's gift to everybody. And it's just not true. There's lots of very smart people there and they're very ambitious and all of that. Honestly, and part of my thesis for why we're doing this in Southeast Asia is that I find no difference in terms of raw material or intelligence or work ethic or any of that between founders in Singapore and founders in San Francisco. The only difference to me is just that the ecosystem here is less developed. And so it doesn't support that raw material as much. I think my story is probably a case in that too. I didn't do really well in school. I was very rebellious. I don't know what it is in Singapore, but in the US, it's eighth grade, which is right before you go to high school. On the last day of junior high, I very vividly remember I went to my eighth grade teacher and I was like, did I fail the eighth grade? Do I have to do this again? And she just laughed and she goes, no, they would have told you that a long time ago, but you were close. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I was just very rebellious. I know Singapore, there's some very big tests in Singapore student life here. And this is probably blasphemy, but I would literally skip school on test days only test days. It was me proving to everybody that I was the one in control and I was like rebelling to my parents, just complete hatred. Again, some context. My dad skipped three grades in school and I'm his eldest son. I'm sure this is like this in other Asian families, but like Chinese families, that's a thing. And for his eldest son, who he sacrificed everything for and moved to another country that has quote unquote more opportunity to just not show up for school. So that caused a lot of friction. And my parents had grounded me and they kicked me out. I'd been caught sneaking out. I like all of that. And I remember that summer, I was halfway through high school and they sat me down and they said, look, again, we have tried everything. We have gotten you tutors. We have grounded you. We have done everything. From this point on, this is your choice. We feel like we have done everything that has been like everything and more that you could ask of parents. If you don't want to go to college, don't. That's on you. The funny thing happened was they took away the thing for me to rebel against. Basically what happens those next few years, I 4-0'd high school. 
The reason why is because after they had that conversation with me, I didn't have anything to rebel against. Then I had to sit down and be like, what do I want? So it's no longer what do my parents want? It is no longer what does society want of me? They've all basically said, we don't care. When I got to the point where I was like, what do I want? I was like, oh, actually going to college is probably a good idea. So I kind of got to work in doing that. Even in college, I did pretty well. I went to a pretty good school. I didn't go to Harvard. I went to University of Washington, which is very good. That bit of rebellion helped me a lot in life in the sense that from that age, I started now thinking about the world and what do I want to do? What do I want to get out of it? Not what my parents want me to do, not what society wants me to do. I think having that agency for yourself kind of from early ages was helpful. And then I think the other part too is that when you fail a lot early in life, you don't need to be perfect anymore in the rest of your life because you've just failed a lot. I'm not actually naturally that good at many things. And so when I do hard stuff now and I suck and I always suck, I'm always just like, okay, cool. This is the process. You suck. Okay, how do I not suck? How do I get better at this thing? And this is something that I tell, uh, especially new college graduates that work on my team. They always ask questions about, oh, how do I get to a pay raise? And these very tactical questions. I always tell them, I'm said, stop. It doesn't matter that much whether you know all these tactical things. The thing that you want to get good at is you want to get good at being good at things. That's the game. And especially that's especially true if you want to be an entrepreneur. You are always going to be doing things that you suck at and you don't know how to do. So the best part, the best thing skill that you can learn is how do I get over the fact that I suck at this thing? And how do I get to work on getting good at that thing? I feel my experience in Silicon Valley is there's a very direct correlation between the very good founders and their ability to be good at that. That is a really important thing that I learned from a young age just because I just wasn't naturally good at stuff. So I'm not surprised when I suck. I have some friends who are very talented and they're surprised when they suck and they don't know what to do because they're so used to being good. And when it happens to me, I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. So who are your role models in real life? Role models in real life? I'm going to give a really cheesy answer, but I'm going to make it very specific and personal. Honestly, I'm not much of a celebrity person, so I, I won't say the Elon Musk's of the world and the Bill Gates, although I feel they're all kind of great. Honestly, it's my parents. And let me talk a little bit why that is, especially for me. My parents didn't grow up with very much. My mom was one of 10. I think my dad was one of seven. My dad grew up sharing a room with six of his brothers and sisters. They did not have much. And so much so that like neither of them went to college, frankly, because they couldn't afford to. My dad was the second eldest brother. You know, Jeremy, you, you might know a bit of this too, but especially that generation, the older kids tended to not have as much money. So they didn't go to school. They would go to work first. And then the younger kids in that generation, like my dad's brothers, the younger ones, the older, bro the older uh, siblings paid for the younger siblings' education. So my dad was the second, so he didn't. My life has an insane amount of advantages compared to their life. They were just too kids from Penang who didn't grow up very, very much. Cut to the long story short, but it's like they ended up in America. My dad started working at Intel in the late 1970s, and he was originally an accountant. Then he ran one of the lines in the manufacturing factory, and then he ran a room in that factory, and then he ran the factory, and then he ran Malaysia's factory. And by the time he retired in, I think, 2000, he ran all of Intel's worldwide manufacturing. So all semiconductors and all chips built by Intel during the 90s came from a factory that he ran. He used to tell me really great stories about his direct manager. I, I think from the topic of this podcast, probably a lot of people have read High Output Management by Andy Grove. It's a management tome now, right? Everybody reads it. My dad's direct manager was Andy Grove for 10 years. Gordon Moore from Moore's Law. He used to have to go to a 
bi-weekly meeting with Andy Grove and Gordon Moore and explain why Intel couldn't produce more chips. I remember as a kid, he would just tell me, oh, Gordon Moore, Andy Grove. I was a kid and I just was, this is my dad's work friends. Like I didn't care. When I got to college and I was reading computer science books and they're like, oh, Gordon Moore. I remember calling my dad and being like, hey, so I'm reading about this guy named Gordon Moore and Moore's Law. That can't be the same guy that you're talking about. He's like, it's the same guy. I was like, why didn't you tell me he was important? He's like, I tried to tell you all the time. You were seven and you don't care. So I think that their story of where they come from and my father playing a part in this whole computer revolution and my mother having to take care of us and play a lot of the familial roles while my father's doing this stuff. They had never left Malaysia before and then they moved to Jamaica for three years or Barbados for three years. I was almost born in Barbados. I would have been Barbadian. The joke I like to say is that Rihanna and I would have been friends. The joke that comes after that is I'm 10 years older than Rihanna. We definitely would not have been friends. My mom used to tell stories of late 70s Jamaica and the number of Asian people in Jamaica at the time was a handful. She went to the market one of the days. It was the first time that they moved there. And there literally was a crowd of people around her touching her hair and lifting her up in the air and being like, look at how small she is. The amount of just unknown and risk that they took, to me, that's just amazing. None of the risks that I've taken starting companies, blah, 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 can match that. That's so amazing. And I'm very thankful to be able to have my part in that. I'll share an, another story about my family with this. I'm not the only entrepreneur in my family. My brother started the first company, but actually there's two or three other founders within my extended family, my cousins. Um, so if, I don't know if you're into anime or Korean dramas and if you ever watch Crunchyroll, my cousin is actually the founder of Crunchyroll from way back when they sold it a while ago. He's actually the founder of Crunchyroll. He's also the director of engineering at Hot or Not way back in the day, which is just hilarious to me. I have a Hot or Not t-shirt for back then, which is awesome. And we all got together one day and our parents always give us a really hard time about why can't you guys get normal, stable jobs? We worked so hard to bring you to America so you would work normal, stable jobs. And all you guys can do is quit your jobs and like, quote unquote, start companies, but basically not make money for years. We were talking about it once and I think it was really interesting. We all had the same answer and we just had never talked about it before, which was we felt like they did the hard work of getting us into this position to have the opportunity to do these things. I don't have to get a stable job. That is a complete privilege that I completely owe to my parents. I think maybe this is partly a cultural thing, but I think of family in generational terms and like, what can you do for the family? And we all had the same feeling, which was like, look, you guys got us into this position. It is now our responsibility to take risk and to try to get the family into the next part. And we all felt that way. Look, we could just go get jobs. Maybe this is a story I should tell at some point, but before starting what ended up being decided, I basically turned down being the second PM at Gmail. They like flew me down there and went through the whole list of interviews. I just, I turned that down. This is 2008. I think the, the Google shares would have been very valuable if I had joined that at the time, it would have been a really good experience. But I just felt my parents had done this thing and it's really important for us to kind of like carry on with that. And so it's our generation's turn to make good on these opportunities that they've given us. So, you know, I think the Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos of the world are great and I learned a lot from them, but the primary role models are my parents. I like to think of myself as a blend of my parents. My mother is the dreamer. I don't think I would be doing startups without my mother's attitude towards stuff. She was the one that was like, you can do anything that's possible, which is very cliche, but also a great thing for your mother to tell you. My dad was the one that was like, okay, if you're going to do that thing, here are all the things you need to do. Here's all the hard work it's going to take. He was the one that did that. One last story I'll share about my mom, which is probably the most meaningful part of everything that's come out of startups and stuff. And it doesn't even really have to do with startups. We did that. We were working on a site 
And we were written up in the Wall Street Journal. I was 25. The Wall Street Journal was a big deal to me. It wasn't like TechCrunch. We were printed in the print ad. And I remember it was Thanksgiving. I bought the newspaper and I went to my mom and I said, hey, mom, look at us. We're in the Wall Street Journal. And my mom took the paper and she smiled at, at me and she said to me, I was proud of you guys a long time ago. I think to this day, that still makes me like teary because that to me is everything that needs to be said about my parents. So they're always going to be role models. Why are you so excited about Southeast Asia? Personally, I still like to think of myself uh, as from Southeast Asia. So I want to be a part of the ecosystem here and I want to contribute in a way that I think is helpful. So I think some of my experience from the Valley can be helpful. We could have started another company, but I think it is more meaningful for me to help other founders here, primarily because I think founders don't get as much support as founders in the Valley. And I think they are doing a very courageous thing with very little support at the moment. And I, I just want to be in there helping them with that. The other part too, is that I think Southeast Asia is really at a turning point. We can have a debate on how controversial that is or is not, but I don't think it's actually that controversial anymore. The thing that really surprised me when I was traveling through Southeast Asia recently was just how much the region has grown in its startup ecosystems. And so I think that there is a lot of opportunity in a lot of different spaces for people to build companies here. I don't think that it's just a matter of like porting over all whatever works in other countries or that whatever country is going to come over. I think we're at the tail end of that. And I think it's not so easy to just, I don't know, be an American to like show up in Southeast Asia. I guess I can say that because I'm like, you know, a lot of Americans now uh, and just be like, okay, cool. I like, know how to do this. I come from Silicon Valley. Here's how you kind of do stuff. It's a very different place. And I think it requires a different set of skills and to be successful here. And so I think iterative is a really good place for me because it checks the personal fulfillment bucket of working here and working with founders here. And then very selfishly, I just think this place is really going to go. I often talk to people that I feel this is China 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Again, I don't know, this is probably not controversial anymore, but I think China has leapfrogged Silicon Valley a little bit. Shameless, shameless plug. I'm starting a, you know, a Y Combinator style accelerator in Southeast Asia. So if you are interested in starting companies, we'd love to hear from you. We're also going to start producing a lot of content and blogs and give talks. So we're going to try to be an active participant in the community to try to help entrepreneurship in Southeast Asia. And so I think that this place is really going to go and I'd very much like to be a part of that. What support is available for others considering a journey similar to yours? Fanboying a little bit. When we were starting out, we all looked up to different entrepreneurs and mine was Mark Andreessen. Mark Andreessen has a really good blog that he wrote, I think way back in the day, like 2006, 2007. He actually took it all down, but somebody happened to archive it. And so if you go to uh, pmarchive.com, it is like all of Mark Andreessen's blog. So Mark Andreessen is still to this day, the person who I, I just really admire how he thinks about stuff and how he goes about doing stuff. Paul Graham is an obvious one. If you're getting started in startups and you haven't read Paul Graham's essays, you need to spend a fair amount of time and just go through those. I feel C's program is basically just an extension of Paul Graham's essays. There's a few ones that are really good. One is do things that don't scale. I think that's a really good one for people who are just starting out. A lot of times when we talk to entrepreneurs, they think they need to have a very scalable solution from the beginning. That's actually not how any of these things start. Um, so he outlines that really well. And then I think the final thing too, which I guess is not really a resource, but I, I want to make it a point to people. You need to get out there. You want to read what you can. And Dreesen's blog's great, Polygram's great. Like you want to read all that you can, but you can only learn so much from reading. I think startups is something that you only can learn by going out there and doing. And doing is not 
something very big. It's not like you have to go fundraise. It's not like you have to go recruit. It's not actually any of those things. To get started, you just need to find a problem that some people have. And honestly, in the beginning, don't even worry about how big of a problem it is. Just find some group of people who has some problem that they feel acutely and solve it for them. And I want to make a note of my formulation of what I just said. At no point did I say product. At no point did I say software. You solve problems for people. That is a startup. That is what entrepreneurship is about, is that you are solving problems for people. I think that's the primary thing that you want to get out there and do is just find a problem and something that will help people and do that for people. And you can worry about the fundraising and co-founder shares and revenue models and TAM calculator. It all comes later. Don't worry about any of that stuff, right? That's only necessary if you want to raise money or something like that. In the beginning, find a problem, solve a problem for some group of people. That's it. And I think that's probably the best way to learn. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.